This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer Worldwide. I'm Bob Comsick in for Libby Snymer. Ontario's assisted dying law is supposed to improve access for grievously ill patients while easing the moral burden on physicians who object to referring patients for assisted death. But is it working? A doctor working on the front lines of medically assisted law will join us. And Libby has talked about co-ownership on this show before, but what if there was an easier way to find someone to co-own a home with? We'll speak to a real estate agent who has a rather unique way to make that happen. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. A new study by McGill University biologists says that we could see more super centenarians live to an age of 120 in the future. This study contradicts one done previously by researchers at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York, That says the human lifespan peaked at 115 years of age. A McGill professor says there's no evidence the maximum lifespan has stopped increasing and suggests the methodology used in the New York study was flawed. The McGill findings would suggest technology, medical interventions, and improvements in living conditions could all push back the upper limit. We all know that falling can be one of the most devastating things to happen to an older Zoomer, with the CDC reporting more than 27,000 deaths per year in the U.S. A company based over in Israel, however, is working on a way to prevent those falls in the first place. B-Shoe Technologies is working on a prototype for a shoe that senses imbalance in every step and uses a mini treadmill-like system to regain balance automatically. Bishu Technology says the prototype is in the very early stages and that it plans to go into mass production in the next couple of years after slimming down the design. Zoomer legend playwright and screenwriter Neil Simon turned 90 this week. Simon is best known for his script writing ability, being credited for more Oscar and Tony Award nominations than any other writer. He began his career in the 1950s, eventually writing scripts on the TV program Your Show of Shows and won his first Tony in 1965 for the Broadway play The Odd Couple. During his 70-year career, Simon has written more than 30 plays and close to the same number of movie scripts. His play Lost in Yonkers, written in 1991, won him the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. A 78-year-old woman is making headlines online, not for her Pinterest recipes, but for her sick beats. (laughs) 
Miriam, a great-grandmother from Kazakhstan, is making her mark by singing rap and posting it on Instagram, which is now going viral. She says she enjoys writing rhymes with her grandson and touches on all kinds of themes, including family. I'm Bob Comsick, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. We know that there are already challenges around access to medical assistance um, in, in, in dying, whether it's from having trouble, you know, finding a provider to facilities that, you know, are refusing to provide or even do assessments on site and telling people they have to go someplace else. Uh, so there are inherent barriers to the system and not being able to access the information that sort of you know, will help us and help communities understand what's happening in Ontario is going to be very problematic. It's, it's really a question of, you know, transparency and accountability. That's Dying with Dignity Canada CEO Shanaz Gokul talking about all the barriers there are when it comes to getting a medically assisted death. This week we learned that the law intended to increase access is actually having the opposite effect. A published report says only 74 doctors and nurse practitioners have signed up for the new care coordination service. That's down from 181 when the Ontario Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care shut down its confidential referral list of medical aid and dying providers at the end of May. To talk about this issue and why it's happening, we turn to Dr. James Downer, who's on the Physicians Advisory Council at Dying with Dignity Canada and serves as a palliative care physician in the University Health Network and Sinai Health System. As far as this new coordination program, what is the problem here? So it fills a need in a certain way because the original referral service was a physician to physician only. Only physicians could access it. And so if you're a patient looking for medical aid and dying, you would still have to find a physician who was you know, willing to refer you through that, that line to put you in touch with another physician. This takes that step out of the picture so that people who are wanting to find out more information about medical aid and dying or, or refer themselves, if, for example, their physician is a conscientious objector, um, this enables them to do that. The problem with it is that the service provided by the consultation service is not as comprehensive as we had hoped it would be. So in Alberta, for example, they have a true case coordination system where the coordinators will screen the calls to make sure that the people will, you know, to the degree they can assess, are, are eligible and meet criteria. They can contact the, the patient's physicians to get medical records as needed. And if it turns out that the person may not be eligible or perhaps might benefit from a referral to a palliative care physician, or a psychiatrist or a social worker, for example, they can take care of that and coordinate that. The the system in Ontario does some administrative work in terms of connecting people, um, but they're not going to do those critical elements of of administration, which mean that the burden for that will fall onto the physician, the provider themselves. Keeping in mind that already participating in made cases is quite time-consuming for simply an assessment. That can take many hours between the assessment and documentation. And if you're actually providing medical aid and dying, I I would say you're looking at a minimum of a half a day or or often a full day if there's any amount of travel to provide the service, to uh, assess the patient, to stay with the family, stay with the patient throughout the procedure, and to support the family afterwards. So you're looking at a lot of work on a very short notice for for these providers. Now you're going to ask them... 
because the patients may not be connected already with, with a physician, that, that these these providers will also potentially have to uh, do some of the legwork in finding other auxiliary services or, or other referral services like psychiatry or palliative care. And these patients may be some distance away from where these practicing physicians are. So I'm familiar with the resources in my area. Am I familiar with the resources in the 905 or in the 705 where I don't work um, enough so that I could get them connected? And, and once they've been in contact with me, I have that professional relationship with them. On a moral level, I want to help them. But on a professional level, I'm actually obliged to help them. So this is a potentially a lot of work that we're asking this very limited pool of providers to take on. And that's the concern. And that's why so many have basically pulled out. Yeah, I think it's, it's important to recognize that this is not the only reason for that. There is probably not the same need for this, this type of service in many parts of the country now, or in many parts of the province certainly now, because uh, whereas a year ago, no hospital really had a service up and running in place to, to provide this service. Now, most hospitals will have a service. Many home providers or large organizations of physicians will have a, an internal service in place to meet the demands uh, for patients who are eligible. Um, so in some ways, the, the, the pressure has, has been taken off a little bit in some parts, uh, like urban areas. Uh, in many parts of the province, though, that is not the case, and, and patients are still uh, very much, um, you know, it, it's hit and miss in terms of whether you're connected with a physician who's a willing provider or knowledgeable about the services in the area. Uh, you know, is your local hospital, for example, a faith-based institution that has a conscience-based objection? These are all things that will heavily influence your access to service, and thus, uh, you know, you need to rely on on referral services, to effective referral services to be in place. And so, the the difference between a referral service and a robust referral service is going to be quite significant for those people. Have palliative care doctors such as yourself asked the province why Ontario's isn't as, you put it, robust as out west? So all providers, um, I think, have been asking this question, and they're, uh, you know, fairness to the government, they recognize that the service is not what it needs to be. I believe Minister Hoskins has just been clear about that, that the plan is, as we move into the fall, that they are going to try to get the coordination service to take on more of those roles, because so many of us have made this point very clear that uh, that this is a concern for us. And the province is also committed to increasing and funding training programs to increase the pool of providers for those who are willing but may not feel you know, adequately skilled in this area. So I think the government has made notable efforts uh, to try to address this shortcoming. The problem, the deficiency in the referral service is important, though, and, and it needs to be addressed. If it is addressed, do you see the numbers increasing? I think so. I, I certainly know that many of us are looking forward to that and, and might be willing to get back involved in the referral service when that takes place. It's just that it's not a question of spite or, or not, you know, wanting to no, not getting our way. But really, uh, all of us are already have more than full time jobs. We have very full schedules. You know, we're willing to help out and support patients. You know, but having to clear, you know, half a day or a day in your schedule on short notice and these are time sensitive referrals. It's not something everyone can do. Yeah, especially as you head into summer with multiple competing demands on people's time. Really, this is an area that we were looking forward to getting uh, a lot of support in. That was Dr. James Downer, critical and palliative care physician at the University Health Network and Sinai Health System. I'm Bob Comsick, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, we'll talk about an interesting way to get into co-owning a home. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP. A new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. 
Welcome back. A few months ago on this very show, Libby spoke with two women who embarked on a bit of a social experiment by eventually buying a house together in co-ownership. It's becoming a rather popular option for those who want to own a home, but don't have the funds or just don't want to live alone. But not everyone who likes the idea of co-ownership knows someone else who does. What are they supposed to do? Real estate agent Leslie Gaynor has come up with a way to get like-minded people together, and she joins me now. Leslie, where did you come up with this idea? Well, it kind of came to me with watching my young sons kind of navigate the world through apps and how many ways they can connect. And I thought, well, if people can make connection for romantic relationships through using an app and a speed dating, and I thought, why couldn't we use it for real estate? Given how inaccessible the Toronto market is for everyone from people who are young to people who are older and want to age in place, I think it addressed a lot of issues. So I thought I'd give it a try. Explain how it works. Well, it really works just like a speed dating night does. You enter the room, you put your name on a badge. If you want to put your real name, you can. You can use a fake name if you want to. And something that you really want in a house. So mine always says I need a large kitchen because I love to cook and entertain. And then people kind of mill about and we have a very informal discussion. I always have a lawyer present who specializes in cooperative purchasing. I have a broker who also can talk about the finances and then myself and I can answer questions about product availability. And then we let people kind of ask the burning questions and then we divide the room in half. Half the room stays seated and the other half kind of moves down one seat at a time and there's a few questions that we've laid out to help the more shy individuals and the conversation just goes from there. We talk a little bit about what we want in a neighborhood, what we want in a house, what we need in a housemate and I'm not talking about sharing bathrooms or kitchens together. I'm talking about separate units just getting into the market so that you're not a tenant anymore. So how many of these real estate, <laughs> uh, I guess, matchmaking, speed dating events have you had? Two so far. I've had four events, but two of them have been the speed dating. And I'm going to have another one in September because I already have a waiting list for people who want to go to the one in September. So it seems to me that I've struck a chord. I don't really have the expectation that people are going to buy houses from a five-minute conversation. But what's interesting is, is that it actually starts a different dialogue around property ownership and about some of the financial as well as some of the social benefits that come with kind of sharing, well, sharing our lot, sharing our resources, sharing all kinds of things. Any deal struck yet? Yeah, I have a deal that we're working on right now with two strangers, basically fulfilling needs for a more senior woman who didn't want to live on her own anymore, um, and a young family who didn't quite have enough money to make it into the market. I have friends who've known each other. I have a number of deals like that. I've had multi-generational families. Now, is this a light bulb that obviously went off in in your head, above your head, with... uh based on the experiences of uh, your household, but uh, have you heard of this anywhere else, seen this anywhere else? No, not in the speed dating. I mean, obviously, you know, shared living is not a new concept, right? right? Lots of people have been doing it. I did it when I was young. I was, you know, not able to afford my own house, so I bought with a friend. We did very well. We sold. We then bought our own homes. It's about making this conversation less scary and more formal. And institutions are starting to recognize that there's money to be made here. Duca Credit Union, Meridia, Meridian um, have now announced a friends and family mortgage. 
So even though it might be taking on different types of names or acronyms, you're seeing this growing, gradually, but growing. Yes, yes. I mean, you've got the Golden Girls, right? I mean, the concept is not new. The concept is actually quite, you know, it's been around for a long time. And, you know, economically, multi-generational living has really helped people settle into uh, maybe being new to Canada or trying to find their footing. I, I just I just really believe that there's intrinsically something really good about this that's not just about money and property, but really goes even further than that. Well, they say, yes, there's an app for that. So what's, what's, <laughs> what's the app called? Well, I don't have it yet. I'm just in the process of seeing how our speed dating goes. But the requests I've been getting are... Can you help me find the other piece of my puzzle? I've got X number of thousands of dollars. I want to live in the downtown core. And, you know, and I don't have a solution yet. I can do profiles and I can kind of connect people. But I think as it starts to take off, I will definitely need to develop some sort of technical help to, uh, you know, help people. I don't know. I really don't know how it will work yet, but I think it will. I have a, a strong feeling that there'll be a nap soon. That was Toronto real estate agent Leslie Gaynor. I'm Bob Comsick in for Libby's Nimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, we'll celebrate the birthday of legendary Canadian rocker Robbie Robertson. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Bob Comsick. It's time for your International Arts Datebook. Tips for those of you jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. Fans of Canadian superstar Shania Twain will enjoy her exhibit at the just-opened Country Music Hall of Fame in Nashville. The Timmins, Ontario native, has won five Grammys and sold more than 75 million albums. At Museum Vorlinden, just north of The Hague, Vancouver-based artist Rodney Graham has opened his first major exhibition in the Netherlands using humor and wit to question what it means to be an artist today. When in Cuba, plan to visit Havana's only English language bookshop, the creation of American writer Connor Gorey. The shop is called Cuba Libro. It's located in Havana's Vedado district. And in Los Angeles, British artist David Hockney's 80th birthday is being celebrated at the Getty with a two-part exhibition featuring his rarely seen self-portraits. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. This week, Robbie Robertson, the iconic Canadian rock star, celebrated his 74th birthday. Robertson's best known for his role as lead guitarist and primary songwriter with the band. He's credited with such classics as The Weight, Up on Cripple Creek, Rag Mama Rag, Stage Fright, and The Shape I'm In. The band has been inducted into both the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. Robertson's also a member of the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame, and he was named 59th on Rolling Stone magazine's list of the top 100 guitarists. Right now, we'll hear an example of Robbie Robertson's exquisite songwriting. It's a story about the last days of the American Civil War, told from the perspective of a Confederate soldier. Here's the band with The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. Train. 
That was the band with The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. Lead guitarist and songwriter Robbie Robertson celebrated his 74th birthday. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Bob Comsick, and thanks for joining me. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. Produced by Dave Woodard, Paul Thomas, and Andre Lowy. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. Home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.